This episode of For the Love with Jen Hatmaker is brought to you by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors. They can be big, difficult, even scary life things, and also small inconveniences that add up day after day. The thing is, when we keep them all bottled up on the inside and just try to grin and bear it, it can start to affect us and the people around us negatively. We may even isolate ourselves, which makes it even worse. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. This was the case for me when I was at the highest stress level in my life, where the stress was even having physical consequences for me. Therapy was a huge part of my healing journey to learn how to manage the stress. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash for the love today and get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash for the love. Hi, everybody. Jen Hatmaker here, your host of the For the Love podcast. Oh, man. <laughs> Woo! Buckle up, you guys. Welcome to the show because we're in a series called For the Love of Facing Your Fears. You guys, today's conversation with today's guest was just super special. And we went 40 minutes longer than we had planned to because the conversation was so rich and so full. And when I tell you, we barely scratched the surface. We're talking about a topic near and dear and really personal to me today, which is facing the fear of questioning or even departing in some way or in a lot of ways from a faith that you've always known. Now, you guys that have been with me in our little For the Love community here for a while have seen the very, very windy, very up and down relationship I've had with faith systems, organized religion, all of it. And I've asked hard questions. I've definitely challenged my own beliefs, reshaped, reevaluated, reexamined. So trust me when I say anyone who is in that space doing this hard and sometimes scary work of testing the boundaries of faith, you have me standing firmly behind you and cheering you all the way. So you are going to love today's episode. Like just get somewhere where you can listen and pay attention. My 90s Christian pals listening will certainly remember the contemporary Christian band, Caitlin's Call. Of course you do with their sort of innovative folk, alternative rock sound. There was just nobody like Cademan's at the time in the genre. Just a soundtrack for like that generation, truly. So Derek Webb was an absolute pillar of the band, songwriter, lead guitarist. Cademan's, they got 10 GMA Dove Award nominations, three wins, six number one Christian radio hits for about a decade. And then in 2003... Derek left Cademan's Call to pursue a solo career. And, oh gosh, I don't even know how to lead into this incredible conversation. One thing I love about Cademan's, they were dubbed a thinking Christians band. And Derek's lyrics in particular 
contributed to that. Highly introspective, led to lots of deeper conversations. And then certainly all of his music post-Cademans is in that space. And so I know it's kind of a buzzword now, but before the term deconstruction was kind of a part of the zeitgeist, this was Derek's experience. Like he trailblazed this for us in a lot of ways. And he re-examined his own faith in a pretty like impactful way. So he doesn't identify with some of those, well, certainly like the evangelical label anymore, even really Christian, but well, you'll just have to hear him. I, I It's hard. He's got room for like spiritual mystery. It, I love to hear him talk about this actually. So Derek's shaking things up, which you know, I understand. In fact, I'm not going to steal thunder from the conversation, but just this year at the Dove Awards, he made quite a splash. He attended wearing a dress along with queer singer Grace Baldridge, drag queen Flamey Grant. If you were anywhere near Christian social media, you saw this. We talk all about that. And it's really actually a lovely conversation and kind of a beautiful, inclusive intention around that peaceful disruption. We talk about everything evolution of beliefs. We talk about the Christian music industry. We talked about the label Christian as a marketing term. We talk about what it means to fail, what it means to re-examine, what we keep, what we hold. You guys, this episode is packed. It's just packed. This could have been three episodes, which is why it's longer than normal, but I promise you worth every single second. So literally without any further ado, let me tee this up for you, please. I hope you love this conversation with the delightful Derek Webb as much as I did. Well, everybody get excited. It is Derek Webb right here on the show. (laughs) Don't get too excited. No, get a little excited. Just a little bit excited. I'm so happy to meet you. I'm so happy to see you. Well, we have so many friends in common and I'm such a huge admirer of yours and have been for so long that I could not be more thrilled to get to talk to you. So thank, thank you. you. Yeah. It's a nice thing to say. So, okay. For my listeners who didn't already know, I filled them in, you know, with kind of sure. the bullet points mm. of your career arc and your story, but we're going to fill in Great. here. So let's roll it way back to, to begin. Sure. Can you just talk a little about how you got started in music, kind of your on-ramp to Cademan's? Yep. And then even I'd like to hear a little bit about who you were during those Hmm. kind of big band years. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I have always played music. It's like the only thing I actually, that's an old narrative. It's not the only thing I know how to do, but it's, it's, it's like Hmm. the main thing. It was my early thing I found. So in all those adolescent Hmm. years, early pre-adolescent years where kids are figuring themselves out or supposed to be figuring themselves out and and there are set things that are assigned value that are being looked for and things like academics social sports it's like you know certain things there are certain categories there's needles you want to have moving when you're a kid none of those needles budged for me I was terrible Mm -hmm. at school I was awkward socially Mm -hmm. I couldn't play sports I'm short like I just couldn't do none of that was working for me but my mom is a tremendous musician incredible mm. pianist trained but also plays by ear and is just a real genius so i 
thankfully got some something from her and found music really early. So I was probably like seven, eight years old. It was late enough for me to already have been feeling the pressure of like, what is my thing? Like, I'm not good at anything. Mm -hmm. I'm not good at any of the stuff all these other kids are good at. I don't have a thing. So when I found music by way of a guitar buried in a case under all my mom's clothes in a closet somewhere, Mm -hmm. that she's a piano player. She wanted to learn how to play guitar because she loved Dolly Parton so much. And she and Dolly grew up in a similar part of Tennessee. But so she had this guitar, but she couldn't play it. And she was frustrated. She, it was in the, so I dug it out and found it and kind of tuned it up. And even as a seven, eight, nine-year-old, like, kind of figured it out and kind of started to teach myself. And anyway, so once I found that, that was like my, my North Star. And I was like, yeah. okay, th- I finally have something that makes sense to me, that is fun, that I mm-hmm. enjoy, I have op- opportunity to do. And that's where that kind of started. And I've said that it kind of music kind of kept me out of trouble over the years because by the time I got to high school, I had more than logged my 10,000 hours and I had worked really hard at it. I, I mean, every, I was failing out of school as a result, but it, it, I had a, a focus. I had a vision, you know, about mm-hmm. this. And I remember that one of the early bands I was in in high school, we were playing some party. I was probably would have been a freshman and somebody gave me a wine cooler, like right before we played and I guzzled down some of it and it was, you know, and when I, and I'd never really had alcohol. So, so when we went to play, I played terribly. I was sloppy. It was terrible. And I remember after that party thinking, I will never touch alcohol again. Because the thing was, like, whatever propels this music thing stays. Whatever is an anchor on it goes. And so I literally did not drink another drop of alcohol until after I was 21. Because yeah. and I was a very rebellious kid. But music was the thing that kept me focused. So it's like, if something helps the music, then it's, it stays. If something's a distraction mm. from it, it's gone. And I'm so grateful to have had that right. during all those years. Cause I could have gotten into so much more trouble. And so anyways, late high school, I had a great pal who I went to high school with Aaron Tate, who I did not know was a, a musician or songwriter, but he went to college in Texas and met a guy named Cliff Young. And Cliff was the heir to the second Baptist church dynasty in houston i have a link to that dynasty do you yeah Uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of people do so his dad it it was and is actually still the uh the the head senior pastor at second baptist church so cliff and aaron met and cliff he and i are very different and we're super close still and he met aaron aaron is an unbelievable songwriter is was always has been an incredible songwriter i didn't know this about aaron at the time he met cliff cliff overheard aaron singing some of his own songs in his dorm room and just overheard it and was like hey man like those are really cool songs did you write what who did you write those songs Aaron was like yeah you know i wrote them and and cliff was like would you do anything with that do you do 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 a band or anything aaron's like no and cliff and cliff's such an opportunist and he said so like do you want to start a band and we could play your songs and Aaron was like nope and, so, and that's where a normal person would have stopped. Not Cliff Young. Sure. Not Cliff Young. Cliff then said, well, could I start a band without you and play your songs? And Aaron thought Classic. about that. Yeah. And Aaron thought about it. And he was like, yeah, yeah, sure. And Cliff was like, awesome. Okay, so now, so as, the, as though Aaron had not given him enough at that point, he was like, cool. So can you introduce me to some musicians for my new band? Because I don't know any other. And so Cliff oh, was introduced to me because Aaron and I had been friends. So Aaron was like, hey, yeah. I met this guy. And and he wants to start a band and i heard aaron's songs and these would have been all the early cademan songs but i heard some of those of course. in their in you know in their i was one of the first people that aaron allowed cliff to play these songs for and so i heard the songs and mm-hmm. was like well this is what i've been waiting for i knew like the songs were so good and so we started the band right then and there 
we had the great benefit. It gets very Malcolm Gladwellian from here because we had the great benefit of Cliff being the the youngest son of the biggest pastor in yeah. Houston. They had a giant church complex with a recording studio in it. So yeah. in, in the very early 90s, we had access to recording our music, and most bands didn't. You had to have a record deal. True. No one could afford, like the tools weren't democratized the way they are now where anybody can record music. So we had all these great benefits. And we had, anytime we wanted to put out a little cassette or a little disc or whatever, we could go play at, Cliff's, Cliff's dad would let us play a song at their services. And it was like, sure. there was like three services with 8,000 people a piece in them. So totally. yeah, we'd sell out every time of everything we had. And it, so <laughs> it just got us going. So that gave us a real home yeah. base. And then that wound up being my career for 10 years. We wound up getting a record deal with Warner and that's like its own long story. I'm going to try to, I'm trying to, believe it or not, I'm trying to keep this brief for you. And, no, uh, I'm fascinated. And, Don't and, truncate it. Oh, well, I, well, it, I mean, because there, there's, you know how it is. There's, there's amazing little random intricate stories that go with every pivot point. Of and there are just, and so for us, there were, there was a handful of these, but we got signed. It was fantastic. It was like these new friends that I found. It was everything I wanted all in one package. It was like best friends, great music and a job. And that was basically from kind of 92 is when we started the band, yeah. same year I, gradu I graduated high school, until the, until the early 2000s. Okay, so you, and you asked, like, who was I during that time? I'm so glad yeah. you asked that question because, so I had barely gotten out of high school. I was kind of a closeted intellectual, I think, a little bit. Like, I'm a, I'm a thinker, but I didn't see myself that way at that time. Mm. And so we had a lot of friends who were either in college, out of college, in seminary. And they were giving us books and they were telling us what to read. And we were playing at a lot of these big colleges. We were basically mainly a college band. And so I probably because I had this chip on my shoulder about, you know, feeling dumb my whole life and have, being told mm -hmm. that I, you know, wasn't smart or smart but can't apply himself, which what can a child do with that information? Nothing. And so anyways, I started reading, started reading. And, and we had like kind of these, these folks who, these guys who were, kind of handing us stuff and saying, hey, you know, this is really cool stuff. And initially I kind of heard what they were saying and didn't like it, didn't sound right to me theologically. And so I was like, nah, I'm not down with that. So I started reading the books they were giving us and it kind of converted me to a very conservative theological system associated yeah. with kind of the Reformation and Calvin. And it was, yeah. that's where I kind of found myself. And I just fell all the way down that rabbit hole. And so mm. during those years in Cademan's, I was studying a lot of theology and it was really all of it in that lane, in that yeah. very kind of narrow space. And I can tell you, Jen, that those were easily my least loving years when I was studying that stuff. And I'm not mm -hmm. blaming the brand of theology. First of all, I was young. Second of all, I was getting all the theology and none of the ethics. And yeah. so if theology is how do we think about God, what are our thoughts about God? Ethics is how therefore do we treat people? And I had none of the second thing. So yeah. I just was weaponizing it and mostly against myself, but also against everybody I would meet. And I was writing it very strongly into Caveman's Call lyrics, which is why some of those songs are extremely complicated for me. My first 10 years in the band, that's really where I was the whole time. That's what I was doing with my thoughts about mm. God. I was weaponizing them. And so they were rough Ugh. years. I didn't see them as rough, but looking back, it's sure. embarrassing and it's sad to me that that's what I did with it. But it's natural, I think, because especially yeah. when it's like God, it's like when, when it's something that, when the stakes are that high and you think you have some kind of special knowledge 
uh, or you think you have a perspective or even just words like a language other people don't have, it's very easy to justify bad behavior morally because you're like, it's the right thing to do because these people are so wrong. I have to fix them. They have to come around to my language and my vocabulary or else they're wrong. And I don't want to see these people be wrong and go to hell. So you justify all the worst behavior. You like build the kingdom with all the devil's tools. And that's what I was doing all during the nineties and early two thousands. It was so that brings us to kind of about 20 years ago, you know, like when I left the, left the band. You know, I understand every word you just said. I know you do. You and I are the exact same age. Yes. And Haydman's was a huge part of the artistic canon I collected in the nineties. And of course, as you might imagine, I married young and we went straight into youth ministry (laughs) Isn't that the path? That I was a path. teacher, by the way. <laughs> that is, this the is path. very acceptable. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Vocation. Yeah, yeah. And Amazing. so, I mean, those were the songs in our ears, the mm. songs in our youth group. This is, I wow. just, I grew up with you. Yeah. And my cognitive dissonance also began, but mm. not until my 30s. Interesting. I also, like you, in my 20s, just felt like, well, lucky me to know all this. That's exactly right. I have the knowledge. Right. And I just need to make sure everybody else knows it. Gets it, it. yeah. Which seems to go very much in the face of something like Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. You know, like, you know, nothing you can boast about, total gift, nothing you can earn, nothing you can. And yet here I was like, well, how lucky am I that I found this? Same. And like, yeah, yeah, so. Same. And it was, it's hard to think back on those years and some of the things that I said, oh, but it was, it really was genuinely well-intentioned. I know. I I totally understand. It's what I knew. Yeah. I I didn't come up in a faith system that encouraged curiosity. Right. That just wasn't a part of the metric. It was, you know, obviously certainty was rewarded. Also fun, small fact, the first place that I ever preached as a girl. Okay. Was it Second Baptist? <gasps> really? I know. We were serving on a church here in Austin at the time okay. who was connected to the Young Empire. Yeah. <laughs> he had come up through Second yeah. and then Fellowship. Wow. I wow. preached on that big stage in that big church, That's all cool. three services. That's cool. I, when I say preach, though, the way I was introduced was that I was there to share with the ladies and the men could peek over our shoulders. <laughs> Literally, that's how I was introduced. Incredible. That's real cute. <laughs> the whole thing. I mean, we shouldn't even start because it, like that, we could spend the whole hour just, yeah. I we could. Know. Yeah. Anyways. I mean, that's incredible. About, incredible though. Let's pick up the baton where you left yeah, it. Yeah. So 10 years in Cademans. Yeah. Talk about your decision, number one, to leave the band. And then, of course, you sort of moved into solo space. Yeah. She must and shall go free. Yeah. Which, you know, created a bit of a ruckus. <laughs> I guess um, it did. And yeah. so what it did was it opened up conversations yeah. inside that space that you had been in. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of us were having these, of course. Absolutely. But we didn't know where to go. Right. And that's why. And, and I'd like to. Uh, yeah. Let's hear about that. Yeah. 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 I think that. There were a lot of people having those conversations around that time. I think there, there was just, there were a handful of things going on. For me, it was a hand, it was also a handful of things that kind of worked into that. Mainly 
the thing that pulled me out of Cademan's. I never, I should say, I never wanted to be a solo artist. Never had a vision mm. to be a solo artist. I, I, I loved being part of an ensemble. I loved doing this with my friends and spreading it out. And it was so much fun. It was so easy. And it was, for those 10 years, it was actually fantastic. It worked really well. But yeah. what had happened was in those first couple of years of the 2000s, this new movement had started. And it's very much, not only is is it in bloom, but I think all the petals have fallen off at this point, but mm. is worship music as a genre, as a subgenre, mm. without which you wouldn't have a song on the radio kind of thing. Like all the Christian bands starting in the early 2000s, and we were kind of right on the, we had front row seats because I think a lot of it, the fuses were lit in at the label yeah. where, where we were, which was essential. It was uh, Third Day, Jars of Clay, Plum, All Star United, Holy. and us. And Gosh. Third Day had put out. You just their- described the <laughs> '90s to me. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so Third Day had put out this Offerings record, which was a quirky record that the label wasn't behind and didn't understand why they mm-hmm. wanted to do. But Mac and those guys were very organically and naturally integrating worship music into their sets live. At the end of their mm-hmm. shows, they would lead music, and it was a real special part of what they were doing with their community. And they went to the label and said, "We want to put out." these kind of songs, they're not our own songs or they're just choruses, but we want to put it out. And some of it's live and it's the label's like, we're not interested because that there's no precedent yeah. for that and it's not going to sell. Mm. And they said, well, you know what? If you want to do it, if you want to pay for it yourself, give it to us, we'll drop it out, but we're not going to promote it. It wound up being the band's like biggest album ever. And it yeah. was a very tight corner that the whole industry kind of pivoted around. It wasn't just them. Michael W. Smith was doing it as well, but it, suddenly mm. bands were coming out with worship albums and that changed kind of everything in the early 90s. So there was immediately pressure on every band to put out your worship record. We need your worship record. Cademans, work on your worship record. That wasn't natural for us. And so we were feeling some of that pressure around that same time. You know, I had spent 10 years in a Christian band. You see behind the curtain, you kind of see how the sausage is made when it comes to like what's really going on with Christian radio and, and, and these big Christian, these big churches and Christian festivals and things where you kind of see all the behind the scenes. And I had some things I really wanted to write about. And Cademan's early in our career was very risk tolerant. Like it was, that was, mm. that was a lot of our, our MO. I mean, we really were trying to put language to things we were seeing and experiencing and no one else seemed to be making art about. And, and so there was no music for people like us, our age going through what we were going through. So we were trying to make the music we needed. And after 10 years, you know, we kind of figured out how things work and we kind of got comfortable and, you know, we weren't really doing that as much. And the platform gets high and you kind of get yeah. into the platform maintenance business and you kind of get into, of you get out of the, get on the platform and say things that get the thing knocked over business. And, so hmm. I was coming. To, I don't know what you mean. Yeah, I know. I know you don't. Boy, that's your whole, <laughs> uh, that's your entire brand, basically. Uh, yes. I love it. So I was writing some new songs, though, and taking them to the band. And the band was like, you know, well, yeah, it's, that's a really good song. But you know, you can't play that at our shows yeah. because they were trying to protect a thing. And I get that. Ten years of hard mm-hmm. work and a lot of careers wrapped up in what we were doing. And so I was in the position to say, well, either I don't play these new songs that I really think are, they seem important to me. I, I feel like I really want to play them. I can't do it on my own and do Cademan's because it's already yeah. too much of a job. It's too big of a job. And it was like, well, you know, mm. go, go off and do it. And we love you and support you. And so I, and you're right. So I kind of came out of that situation with kind of a, a contingency of Cademan's fans that came with me. So it was a very unlikely mm-hmm. debut record, my first record, and it did have some tricky 
material on it and some controversial, I guess, some controversial stuff at that time. And But it got pushed out and supported because I had that wind at my back after 10 years yeah. of Cademan's. So I was able to do it. And then it just spoiled me and made me think I could always be that way. And so now here I am 20 years later and I'm still doing that. I'm spoiled into thinking that I can write songs about things no one else is writing songs about. <laughs> and that's like kind of my thing now. So I love it. Yeah. And so that's how I got started. You know, you yeah. had a real North Star back then though that turned out to be right. Yeah. Okay. Well, so here's the thing. Again, you you see enough of it, you experience enough of it, you just observe it for long enough to think a little more critically about it. And you come to very clear conclusions, and this was mine, that the word Christian, when applied to anything other than a human being, is a marketing term. That's all that it is. It's, it's a marketing term. It cannot mean what it means when people say it about people. But just because something is rubber stamped as Christian, now it's Christian music, Christian education, Christian retail, Christian breath mints, Christian festival, whatever it is, does not make it inherently right, true, good, beautiful, redeemed, inherently. In other words, all this Christian music you hear on your local Christian radio station is not the only music there will be in heaven by virtue of it being the Christian music. That is not. And yet, when you talk about people, that seems to be the, the, the way people mean it, is the, the Christian people are the ones who will be in heaven. And so yeah. the Christian art must be the art that's going to be in heaven. That is not, cannot be what it means. Someone just decides who wants to buy this. Okay, well, then that's how we need to position it in the market. That's what it is. And I'm not even saying that it's not helpful. It's extremely helpful the word Christian as a marketing term. I use it as a marketing term all the time. And so therefore, it's just a fiction. There is no such thing as Christian education. There's no such thing as Christian radio stations. Mm -hmm. Radio stations that say we are, they advertise as safe for the whole family. And Christian retail, it's like come in and consume at will. Turn your powers of discernment off, bring in your kids. Yeah. Everything we have here is pre-vetted for your spiritual uh, nourishment. Just come in and take mm -hmm. it. Where I learned that was not true, I'm not trying to call names out here, but I, I am because this mm -hmm. is what sparked my solo career. The Prayer Jabez is literally what sparked mm. my solo career because oh, Bruce gosh. Wilkinson, who wrote Boy, there's it. There's a blast from the past. Yeah, I know. I know this is what's happening. His book was mm -hmm. a multi-million dollar bestseller. Every Christian yeah. retail store had Prayer Jabez in caps on every aisle selling totally. the Prayer Jabez companion Bible, the Prayer Jabez soundtrack oh gosh, that a bunch yes. of our friends were on. And when I read it. And when I heard Bruce speak at some of these big conventions we were doing together and I heard him talk about it and I was like, I don't know, this doesn't ring like to say, here's an obscure prayer from the old Testament. It's prayed one time by an obscure character. We don't know how God answered it. If God answered it, we don't know anything about it other than here it is. And yet here's a guy making promises in a book that regardless of how you feel about anything else spiritually, if you pray it every day for 30 days, it's on the back of the book, it says that the prayer God can't not answer. He has to answer it. And he'll expand your territory. And I heard him making these promises to Christian retailers mm. right in front of me. Like, if you pray this prayer, the next year when you come back here, I want to hear your stories about how, how God expanded your store. You're going to be buying the store next door and expanding into there. Your, re your revenue is going to go, it's going to double. And oh. I was just like, I don't know, y'all. Is, is this really what the people at the top of this whole industry are buying into and and I it just didn't sit right with me and so literally the night that this happened when I heard we heard him speak and we played right after him it was really an awkward situation I wrote mm -hmm. a song called wedding dress literally that night in a hotel in Atlanta after the convention and showed it to the band they were like you know you can't play this because it was about Ezekiel 16 and it talks about the church as a whore and that whole thing but I was looking at the room sure. thinking like look at us like it looked like a Billy Graham crusade but I expected all these people who 
were the people in charge of putting stuff in Christian stores to hear his spiel and be like, no, 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 no. Like we, this yeah. is, don't tickle our ears with this. Like, but the whole place wept and got up and came to the front like an altar call. And I was like, I think wow. I was just really disappointed. And I was like, okay. And it sparked something about art has this interesting thing and it doesn't have to do this, but it's one of the few areas of culture left that can sit in kind of a prophetic space and can speak mm -hmm. truth to power. Yeah. Art is one of the few places that can do it. And it's not just Christian art, right. God knows. It's all art. I mean, art has this potential. You don't have to do that. But there are times when artists do speak with a kind of a prophetic voice. A lot of times they don't know they're even doing it. Hip hop does it mainly and has really owned the prophetic space for the last 25 years easily. Before that, mm -hmm. it was Bob Dylan and Pete Seeger and Joan Baez and you know Woody Guthrie. And it literally, I feel like those people handed the baton right to hip hop artists. But that's where mm -hmm. the prophetic voices are. And they're speaking truth to culture and they're challenging culture. And it, I had one of those moments where I was like, I need to say something. Like, I need to write something. Yeah. I wrote that song and it wound up being the first of my solo material. I didn't know. I thought I was, write, thought I was writing a caveman song. But it's what sparked my solo mm -hmm. career. And ever since then, I've really tried to instill in people, like, listen, don't, people are trying to sell you certainty. They're trying to sell you safety. It's not that simple. You have to learn how to discern things. You have to learn how to think for yourself. It's so interesting how Christian, it's one of those weird features of Christian culture that they don't really want people to think for themselves. They don't want people to think critically. Mm -hmm. They want people to lean on a false certainty and then never think about it again and just kind of receive the talking points. I don't identify as an evangelical at this point. I don't have any certainty about any of that stuff, but I still do believe, I can't not believe or hold space for the possibility. But man, so much conventional religion makes it so hard to see that or access that because they advertise I what just... they're doing as that. And so that's why people try it, get devastated, disappointed and hurt, and then throw all the baby out with the bathwater. And it's, yeah, it's hard. And it's so much of why you're here doing what you're doing is to give voice to the people who are on the other side of that and trying to figure out what now. I feel like we could talk about this for so many hours. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Guys, it's already allergy season in Texas. My yard is in full bloom and all the things are in the air. So I decided allergies will not win this year. So I tried Astapro. It has improved my nasal allergy symptoms and it's faster, bro. Astapro is a first of its kind nasal allergy spray. It is the fastest 24 hour over the counter allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours. Astapro is the first and only 24 hour steroid free allergy spray. Astapro delivers full prescription strength, indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. So get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go, you guys, today. A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Ask to pro and go. No, but it I, feels a certain way yeah. when you come up through evangelicalism and then all of a sudden you're pressing really hard on the sacred forms. It's certainly, it's no mystery how the community responds to it. You know, right. belonging is easily revoked. <laughs> That's right. the punishment. That's right. But there's also an internal yeah. rub. Yes. I, I don't know. I just want to hear you talk about yeah your faith during that space? I think what was happening is early 90s, there started to be kind of a new movement. 
Well, let me stop and say in every Mm -hmm. industry and every big cultural movement, there's like a cycle to it. And there's the early kind of organic, spontaneous Mm. cycle where a thing happens, a new spark and something happens. And then as it starts to grow in people hear about it and people get caught up in it and and in as far as it's real and organic and resonant and relevant it starts to kind of grow but the bigger it gets it starts to institutionalize and then it starts to cracks start to form and then on those cracks there's new opportunities for new sparks and disruption this is the cycle every industry goes through this is the cycle every cultural movement goes through and christianity even western evangelical christianity was going through one of those pivot those cycle pivots around that time there were cracks and what was happening the spark in those cracks was and you'll know this was like the emergent church kind of movement there were people Mm. who were wanting to think in a new way in a new open way in a new creative way about spirituality like leave behind some of the old language let's find some new language and that was happening and as a byproduct it was getting very social what's interesting it was getting back to the roots in my opinion the roots of the western church you know, I mean, the yeah. whole civil rights movement came out of, of course. black gospel churches and all of that organizing came out of those communities. And the church was, had always been a part of that in, to some degree at different times. And suddenly there was this new thing that was happening and it was very, it was expressed in a very social way. And I was resonating with that. And a lot of my friends were resonating with that. And that is when ethics started to show up. And I started to realize that was the piece, the yin yang I was missing was, Mm -hmm. oh, I've been so obsessed on thinking about, obsessed on my language about God, that I forgot to apply it to the way I behave in the world, the way Mm -hmm. I treat other people, which is ethics. And I realized, oh no, how did I miss that I am, as I stand before you, the ringing cymbal, the clanging gong, of I've got all the right words and none of the love, none of the fruit. And you can see it all over my life. I'm, I'm angry and I, and so when I found that, I really loved it, resonated with it. I was like, oh, this yeah. is the logical next conclusion. This is the conclusion that makes sense of what you would do with all of this. And so that kind of suddenly put me over, in which is when I was starting my solo career, it put me over in a category I didn't really choose, but over into that kind of emergent church kind of spot. And it was kind of pulling me forward a little bit. And so I, I started to kind of come awake to some of that. And I started writing songs about more political things and more social things. And it kind of took me over that way. Here's another thing, and I'm going to skip ahead a little just for the sake of time. Mm-hmm. But another thing that happened and I think this is necessary in my, a lot of my friends, and, I, and I, I'm curious you'll resonate with this as well. A ways after that, in the early 20-teens, I went through some very major personal failure in my life and in my marriage. I went through some major failure and that I was not ready for. I just, I, I, hmm. I was so preoccupied with I don't know what it was, but I was not known by anybody in my life. I didn't have safe people yeah. in my life that yeah. I could go to if things got out of hand or if I, I realized I couldn't control like what was happening and things were kind of getting out of control. I, I didn't have people and I didn't have mm-hmm. community. I didn't have, I had the appearance of it, but I didn't have it. I didn't, I didn't have it. Yeah. I wasn't letting people in. I wasn't pursuing it. And so I got a divorce. I was divorced in t- almost 10 years ago. And something about going through that, you don't really learn anything from success. You learn hardly anything. All you do is heap more expectation on yourself to succeed more. But when you fail, you don't have to do this, but often 
people do, it's, it's the quick instinct is you pull that car over, you pump the brakes, you pull that car over, and you're like, what happened back there? What is going mm-hmm. on? How did this happen? How did I wind up here? How, how? Yeah. And you take stock. And if you've got good people around you and, and you can manage to find some quick kind of healthy response to that, then you'll learn everything you can about yourself, about your circumstances, about your story and figure out why in the world this is not me. This is not mm-hmm. who I, this is not how I see myself and what, how in the world could this have happened? I need to figure, apparently there's a lot of things I don't know about myself and I need to sort this out. And that was a revelation to me. And there mm-hmm. were a handful of years that I, I really kind of went very inward and I went through some very intense, very good, very consistent therapy, you know, and, oh, and, yeah. and found and built a community where I'd never had one. And now, I mean, if, if anything happened this, this morning, I've got two dozen safe mm. men that I could reach out to. And obviously my wife and other, but like people who I have intimacy and know me and I have a shorthand and I, they know my story, they know everything, you know, and it's like, I have those people now, but I didn't have any of that. And so I kind of had to rebuild at, at almost mm. 40. I had to rebuild a whole life and reckon with, the fallout of what I had, you know, the, at, at least my part of the responsibility of, you know, some, some real hurt. I caused a lot of people who I love, the people I love more than mm-hmm. anybody in the world. And it humbled me and it caused me, it, it kind of caught me up in terms of my emotional health and things that had apparently just because I had had so much success coming out of the band and my solo career, everything had been pretty easy for me. I, I hadn't had any big, no big wrecks that I had gotten in, Mm -hmm. but boy, that was, that was the one. And it really fundamentally changed me. It did. And I came out of that a completely different, I don't remotely relate to, I am exactly that person, but I don't relate remotely to Mm -hmm. my behaviors and my choices and, and the way I was living my life. So anyways, that was a huge, huge corner that I went around as well. And I think around, and I bring that up now because, first of all, because it's important in my story and everything, all of my gratefulness, all of my perspective, all of the life that I have and love now, all of the amends that I have made, all of the, everything Mm -hmm. about the life I now have that I love and am grateful for is a result of, I can line of sight back to that major Mm -hmm. failure that I went through. And the other thing that happened around that time was it kind of called my spirituality, it called it for all its chips. And it was like, Mm. okay, let's see if this thing can bear the weight of the major life crisis and the major failure. And is it really comforting when you lean all your weight really on it? We're not just practicing, but it's showtime now. What does it really mean? And how does it really Mm. feel? And so there was a lot going on there. And it caused a lot of what you might call deconstruction. Although I kind of, it's a shorthand, I don't mind, but it's uh, what does it even mean? It gets anymore? a bad rap. Yeah. If 10 mm-hmm. people define yeah. a word 10 ways, stop using that word. But um, yeah, that's right. But you know, just that audit of your presumptions about invisible reality, that that thing mm-hmm. that needs to happen regularly, always. I had not done it in a long time. Yeah. And boy, did I ever do it during that time. And so that was just kind of the amendment on the bill. It just kind of went in with all the life rethinking and rebuilding, you know, the spirituality let me, piece went Let with me it. pause because yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about that audit a little bit. And as you observed the boat yeah. from a distance yeah. at a point where you were liberated for better or for worse, 
yeah. to be honest. Yeah. Yep. And to have some real choice self-awareness. Yeah. yeah. What stayed and what went? <laughs> yeah. And that's a great question. I'll tell you, initially, everything had to go. Just for, for me, and everyone's process is going to be super different about this, but for me, the only way I felt like I could trust what was going to remain is, it's like what Sting said, you know, you love somebody, set them free. So it's like, I needed for all of it to go and then see what showed back up and yeah. what seemed necessary and what seemed real. And I needed to kind of take stock. And so it was one of those like, okay, at first, I'm going to just pretend like none of it's real and I don't know any of it. And I'm just going to, I'm going to see how long I can go. I'm just going to come in. And for a long time, I was like, I'm not even going to presume there's a spiritual layer to all this. I'm going to presume that all this can be completely explained rationally. And maybe I don't need any of that. Because from here, anything that comes back that shows back up, I feel like I know I can trust that because Mm -hmm. I didn't invent it. I'm off of the, I'm off of God's PR team at this point. Like I'm not Mm -hmm. jumping across the ravine. I, I need it to come to me. Like I'm Lazarus mm-hmm. in the grave. I'm waiting to hear my name, but I'm, I'm laying here until then. And I got, and what else can yeah. I possibly do? Like, that's it. And yet I realized community is insanely important. Not that the church mm-hmm. or Christianity owns, you know, that they don't get the trademark on that, but I really missed and needed that. I needed mm-hmm. people. I needed to find excuses to be around people with whom I had nothing in common other than maybe our acknowledgement of our humanity and our mortality. And so for me, that early on, that became kind of like groups that I could go and in a safe way, I could go and talk through things I was processing and I could, it became therapy groups, but that was essential. And then after that, when kind of the, the hot red center of the blast, when I was out far enough to be in a recovery about it, I was like, okay, now I just need to really put together, you know, I need to find my friends. I need to find my people. A thing I never really experienced, and I'm not blaming the religion, I'm not blaming, but Mm. gratitude. Like, I was not really grateful. I was not thankful in my Mm. life. I took all of it for granted. And and what I didn't take for granted, I thought I deserved and earned. And it made sense that I had it. But on the other side of that, you know, and so, and quiet, like, perspective. Like, there were so many things that I, practices I found myself right back in but I just needed to, and you see these things mm-hmm. all through culture and all through different religions. And you, you see some of these core things like both mm-hmm. solitude and community. You need both in measure, a language and a practice of gratitude. But for me, it became rather than saying, having a, a moment and saying, oh, you know, quietly, maybe silently, God, thank you for that. And that's the, I would just, I would just take the middleman out and I would go straight to my wife and say, my God, I am so grateful that you're here and thank you for loving me and thank you for... So I just kept short receipts with that and went straight to those people and just talked about it out loud a lot. And in my music too, it started to change the way I wrote. It started to... Here's the thing. I'm still figuring my way through this. I think Mm. the word belief, when you're believing something, it's like you're committed to it. You wind up with a confirmation bias that the information you receive, you make work because you really... This is the thing you're committed. You're believing this. And it makes you're sitting in the boat. Yeah, exactly. You're in the boat. So you need Mm -hmm. it to, you need it to be able to hold you. And if, and every little leak that pops up, you're like, no, 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 that's, that's isolated. That's not, that's no problem. But it's like, you're you're not going to look at it honestly anymore. And so for me, I kind of was like, you know what, maybe I'm not going to believe 
stuff. I am post-certainty. I am uncertain, which is the prerequisite of faith. It's not the enemy. And I want to remain till the day I'm dead, uncertain about all of it. It's the thing that keeps me running behind it. It's the thing that keeps me, it's, it's propelling me forward. It, it's the thing that keeps me honest about it. Because rather than believe stuff, like cause and effect. Cause and effect is a thing I think I believe in. I think I see that playing out consistently in every, call it karma, call it law of attraction. What you radiate, you attract. I think that's real. I see that. And regardless, but beyond cause and effect, I don't really know what else I'm believing at this point. But what I am doing, if I'm not believing, what am I doing? I'm hypothesizing. I hypothesize and I say, okay, this is, how I, this is what I think. It's my opinion. And I say in my opinion a lot in my life now. And I didn't say it for 30 years. I never said mm. in my opinion. I said, here's what's up. You know, now it's like, well, in my opinion, here's, but you know what? If I get evidence to the contrary, life experience to the contrary, then I'm not holding that. Deconstruction as a concept is like having one big meal a day. I don't think it's maybe the best thing for your system. I think, because you have to go through losing your job and all your friends and all your, it's like, I think let's, let's do this micro. Let's do it in a granular way. Let's like be thinking about it a little bit every day. And if there's a thing that we're saying, a way that we're understanding language, presumptions, hypotheses, opinions, whatever it is, and suddenly we're like, you know what? That's not making sense. That's not holding mm. water. That's not, you know what? Be open to letting that thing go this week and see how that feels. And let's hypothesize and let's bring the true stuff as it rings true with us as we, mm. let's drop it if it's not, let's pick it back up if it is. And that's kind of where I'm at. So I'm, mm. I'm still, I mean, I spent a year last year working at a church here in town. Now it's mm. the most progressive church in Nashville, Grace Point Church. Sure. But, but I love the people. I love what they're doing. I love the way they're like a halfway house, like a an, both on and off ramp for spirit for conventional spirituality for people. I love the way they're what they do. So I wanted to help out and work with them, and so I did that. The whole time I was there, I would probably identify as a hopeful agnostic. But yeah. yeah so anyway, th that's where I, that's where I am now. Is I'm really mm -hmm. figuring it as I as I go and trying to write mm -hmm. soundtrack for that because now I realize. Yeah. So Jen, here's the funny thing, and I'm I'm going to stop monologuing. But the funny thing is. For the 30 years or so, 25 years, 20 years, that I spent making music and what I was making, either Cademans or Solo, was being identified often as ministry. That's what people were telling me I was doing and thanking me for. Sure. Thank you for your ministry. Your ministry, oh, I, you have such a powerful ministry. And I was always like, hmm. I don't know. Like, is that, that's not, I don't think that's what I'm doing. I don't show up every day to this job to win people over to my way of thinking. I show hmm. up to write the best songs I can and to play them as well as I can. I'm a professional, I'm a vocational musician. I'm not a vocational minister. That's a whole other set of gifts, whole other deal. And yet that's what it appeared I was doing for all those years. I, I, yeah. I did not see it that way. And yet here I am now going into my 50s, going into my 30th year of this job and at a place where I don't identify any particular way about my spirituality. And starting a couple of records ago, I absolutely consider what I do ministry. I am in mm. full-time vocational ministry now. And the reason is, is because yeah. I realize one of the hardest things in deconstruction or whatever it is, or just going through hard life stuff, failure, whatever, any of any things I've experienced is the isolation, is the feeling alone. I'm the only one. Yes. No one's ever been here before. No one's ever felt this. And it wreaks havoc on your life to feel mm -hmm. so isolated and alone. And I realized if I have anything I can give, if I have anything that's worth my time, it is contributing in a way that makes people feel less alone. 
and writing soundtrack for where I've been in order that people could hear that and grab onto that and at least have something to accompany them. Because I wasn't finding a lot of it through my divorce. I wasn't finding a lot of it through my deconstruction. There was not a lot of music to help me and to go with me. And so I was like, well, that's my reason. That's what I need to do. And so I literally, when I'm writing songs, I think what is the language people need who are like me or who might just be where I'm at now very soon or one day, what do they need to find? What's going to help them? What, what are their battle cries? What's their grief? What's their glory? What, you know, what do they need? What language? It's like the hymn writers. It's like, what language do people need to confess things they wish to believe? That's what worship leaders do. That's what they, they, that's what they, that's their job description. And that's how I feel what I'm doing now. I'm writing soundtrack for people and it's ministry to me. And it, I couldn't be more surprised, <laughs> you know, like at this point. So totally. <laughs> anyway, I'm sorry I talked so long, Man. but it's like, that's just no, kinda... no, no, no. That's exactly why I have you on the show. It's where that um, went though. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't life surprising? It's, uh-huh. I couldn't be more. I mean, if you, if anybody would have told, let's say 25 year old you and me. Yes. That this is the conversation we're having in the lives that we're living. Yes. When we're about to turn 50. Yes. Wouldn't have believed it. Absolutely I'll tell not. tell you that. Absolutely not. I have to ask you about this because yeah. you have found an you found an interesting space as a like a peaceful disruptor hmm. at the Dove Awards. <laughs> we just you have to talk about oh, it. Oh, absolutely! I, I would love to. Um, I won't even lead the witness. Okay. I just will. I'm going to volley that up to you yes. and Great. love to hear that what that experience was like, what your decision process. Yes. Looked like and what's what it was like to experience that because you went right into the belly of the beast there. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So here's the deal. One of the things that I had struggled with through my study of theology and through all those years was how the Bible interacted with people who I knew and increasingly friends and family who were in the queer community. That was a thing that was always a rub for me of like, how does this stuff make sense? And does it make sense? And I had a real hard time with it, but it mattered a lot to me because it showed up in my life. I mean, my friends, my family, my loved ones, it's, it was, it was not a thing I could really avoid reckoning with and trying to square my beliefs at that time with, and I wrote about it over the years. I've written a, a decent amount about it. And what I knew is that I might not understand all this. I might not be able to put it all together theologically, but I have to believe that God is at least as loving as I am and Mm. that I am not more loving than God is. I have to think that I'm not somehow better and more Mm. loving, more radically loving. Because when I look at Jesus, I see somebody who was so radically loving and welcoming that he literally was called by the names of the sins, so to speak, of the people he was hanging out with. He he was happy to have his reputation ruined for the sake of being with people who had been marginalized and excluded from conventional spiritual spaces. That's that was his whole deal. And so I was like, I know where I think Jesus would be standing. If there's a line drawn, I don't wish for there to be, but if there is, and the church is the one drawing it, I have to think Jesus is on the other side of that line. And I need to be on, on the right side of that line. And that's always been a preoccupation of mine in the last few years. And so as a result, I just have a lot of great friends, very, very close friends. Yeah who are all over that map in terms of the queer community. And they're they're my favorite people. I mean, I love complicated people. I love people who know stuff because they've been through stuff. Mm -hmm. And those are my favorite people. 
I'm complicated in that way. My wife is that way. My kids are that way. I just gravitate towards people who are like, ooh, you're complicated. I want to hear everything. Yeah. Like, I want to hear you got yeah. you, Jen, are extremely complicated. And I love it. You're, that's why you're so fascinating. And so anyways, naturally, relationships turns into work, turns into, you know, we just do stuff together. So one of my great of friends who is a, a drag queen named Flamey Grant, which is the best drag name of all time for Ever. anybody who grew up in, in the nineties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, which is a, which is a, a, a homage. It's not a, it, I mean, it's not a jab. I mean, it's, it's no, because no, no. of Flamey's deep love of Amy Grant's music. So anyways, Flamey's a great friend. I've known Flamey for a bunch of years, half a decade at least that we've been friends and do work together. And Flamey sang on my new record. It, my, my record's called the Jesus hypothesis. And we did a song called boys will be girls on that, on that album. Mm -hmm and made a music video for that song where Flamey puts me in drag. Now we did this early this year and yeah, it was, you know, it stirred up a little bit. All the typical, uh, you know, outlets were upset about it and promoted me just as predictably as I hoped they would. But we did that. And then I'd sang a song on Flamey's record, Bible Belt Baby, mm -hmm. which came out early this year, I believe. But it's interesting. Flamey and I have been in trouble together a lot lately. And it started with our video, and then it was Sean Foyt, who is kind of a MAGA worship leader. He got real popular doing big worship, outdoor worship events right. during the peak um, of COVID yeah, with no masks. Right. And yeah, it was like super spreader events. A lot of photos with Trump, and he, that's kind of his space, and that's okay. I mean, that's his space. So he saw that Flamey and I were doing work together, and he must have known me from Cavemans. And he was like, this just must be the end of days if we have Christian musicians partnering with drag queens. I mean, he was like, this is the end times, everybody. Yeah. And he was real upset. And Flamey, you don't, first of all, you don't step to a drag queen. Let me just tell you, you don't, you don't do that. Because <laughs> um, drag a drag queen will, will handle you. They will handle you. <laughs> um, they've been through enough to know how to handle. And so Flamey, no. So Flamey turned this very public, you know, you know per kind of aggressive pursuit and judgment from Sean Foyt into like parlayed judo to that into yeah. a number one Christian album, number one Christian single, which is the song we had together because Flamey had used the marketing category of Christian. You know, her record was for Christians. That's who it's for. That's who she wanted to find mm -hmm. it. Cause it's about growing up in the church. It's about, you know, figuring yeah. yourself out in light of spiritual reality and that. And so that's the category it was released into. So when it blew up and got big because you know, Flamey has, you know, like 90 or 100,000 followers on, on TikTok and was like, oh, Sean Foyt said that I don't matter. And Sean Foyt said, you know, Sean literally said yeah. like, you know, nobody listens to you. Nobody cares about you. No one's going to care what you have to say. No. And Flamey basically said, is that right, friends? Is mm. that, is Sean right or Sean wrong? Like, let's, can we prove him wrong? Do, does anybody care? You know, do any of you resonate with this? And basically number one album, number one single, it was historic. I mean, it was like, it'd never been done before. Yeah. And I was, it's one of the things I'm most grateful for in my whole career is being any part of putting a drag queen at the number one Christian charts <laughs> album and singles charts. Anyways. So then later this year, and we have a mutual friend in Semler who is Grace Baldrige, yeah. who is a tremendous artist, incredible boy. If you want soundtrack for having grown up in the church. And so Flamey and Semler and I were just talking and we were like, you know what? The Devil Words are coming up. They just sell tickets to it. You, anybody can buy a ticket and go. And Similar had released their last two, I think, records into the Christian music category because that's who it's for. It's a marketing category. Mm -hmm. Flamey had released her album into the Christian music category. 
And I had released my most, pre, most recent record, G's Hypothesis, into the Christian yeah. music category. I've got a song about the Apostle Paul on there. Who else is it for sure. if not Christians? I mean, it's Christian yeah, music. That's right. Anyway. That's niche. Um, yeah, it's niche. <laughs> I mean, that's me. Anyway, and so we were like, this is our space. This is like, these are our colleagues. Now, you might exclude us, and especially mm-hmm. Flamey and Similar and others. You might exclude these people. You might marginalize them. But they belong. They belong because this is their workspace and what they're contributing. And Flamey talks a lot about this, about the importance of representation, visibility. Flamey's like, I want to continue to be in Christian spaces because I want to take up physical space and say, I am here, I belong here, so that queer kids coming up see me in the space and know yeah. that you exist. Mm. You exist. Mm-hmm. Like, you, 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 and, and kids don't know that. And they That's think, right. well, if I don't and can't exist, and you, you see what happens as a result. And so Flamey's like, it's so important that, that kids like, like, like Flamey would say, kids like I was growing up, feeling completely out of place, feeling completely confused and upside down, and like I make no sense. And I, I'm like a unicorn, I'm like Bigfoot. I can't be real. I can't be mm-hmm. all the complication I hold in my physical body. And, and, and I feel the pain in my physical body of holding it all together in this space. I need those kids to see me. I need them to know that this that that they are not alone. That there are these people in this space doing this. And so it's been very important. And so it's like, yeah, you can exclude us from your space, but that doesn't mean we don't belong. And that doesn't mean we're not contributing work into that space. That's and right. so we were all like, well, let's go to the Devil Awards. Like, let's go. Like, we just wouldn't that be fun? And so, <laughs> like, Flamey and similar, let's all go. And so those two got on social media and we're like, okay, we just bought tickets in section 102 or whatever. If you want to come with us to the Dove Awards, buy tickets. We're all going to go. Like, let's go together. Let's support each other. Like, it's going to be tough. So let's go together and let's be a, go as a community. And so we were like, all right, let's go. Let's do it. So there's this great quote that I put in my music video that Flamey was in by Stan Mitchell. And he's a, a pastor here, ex-pastor. Kind he's of. my friend. Yes. Stan is mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. And he had this great quote. He said, if you claim to be someone's ally, and you are not being hit by the stones thrown at them, you are not standing close enough. So for me, I was like, how do I walk into the Dove Awards? First of all, I've won Dove Awards. It's kind of my community, and I'm a straight white man, and I walk in there with all the privilege in the world, all the advantage in the world. How do I surrender that? How do I walk in literally as an ally to my friends? How do I walk in Mm -hmm. like making sure that however you see my friends, you see me? I don't want to make no mistake about who I am in, in this room right now. I'm not one of you. I'm one of them. Mm. And I was talking to Flamey about it. I was like, Flamey, what are you, what are you wearing to the doves? And I, obviously I knew Flamey was going to look amazing. And, you know, of course. But, and what should I wear? Like, are we going kind of fancy? Are we going? And Flamey was like, oh, well, you should for sure wear one of the dresses that you wore in your photo shoot for your album. Mm. Because, first of all, you looked amazing. And, I mean, why would that? That's definitely, you know. And I was like, oh my God, that's, of course, uh, yeah, that's, and so my wife, who is my stylist, who, uh-huh. you know, helped me and with the leggings and the, you know, the shoes and you know, it's important. You want to, it's a deal. Yeah. I have some pearls, you know, I wanted to, so we went to the doves and so I was not in drag. I've been in drag, but I was not in drag that day. I was just wearing a dress and Flamey was obviously gorgeous. Semler was there and a contingency of people came from all over the country. Probably more than a dozen people showed up there. We met out front. We went in. We were not looking for trouble. We were looking. I mean, we love Christian music. I mean, like we grew up on it. It's nostalgic. Yeah. We we make it, arguably. Mm-hmm. We wanted to be there. We were not there to cause trouble. We were there to just be there, to, to as Flamey said, to physically take up space, to represent mm-hmm. physically in the room. And 
So we went. It was pretty non-eventful. We didn't have real like trouble. Like no one really gave us any trouble or anything. If anything, there were people from the floor coming up when they heard that Flamey Grant was in the building. There were we had some mutual friends who were down there, some allies in yeah. the industry, who people were coming to those people and saying, "Hey, I, I heard Flamey Grant is here in similar shape. Can you take me up and introduce me?" So people were coming yeah. up to get selfies with similar <laughs> and Flamey, and then go back down to the floor and go get their double words. I mean, I guess we saw it as it was fun for, to us, and it felt right mm -hmm. because that is those are our colleagues. That is our workspace. That is where we belong. Whatever they say, and. It sure did raise a stink about it. So we, I mean, we, we yeah. posted the next day about how we gone to the Dove Awards. It was amazing. And, you know, then we had John Cooper and we had Matt Walsh and we had just a lot of folks very upset about this. And here's what's interesting. They were mostly, and I would love to process this with you very briefly, because they were mostly upset with me. And I think the mm. reason was a lot of these men with these platforms, they see a drag queen, they see you know, similar, who is a, who's a queer, non-binary artist. Yeah. And then they see me. Yeah. I'm a, oh, I know. And I, I know think, this narrative. and I think they saw what I did because none mm -hmm. of them really got that upset about flame. You're similar. No, um, they see that as a reversal and a betrayal. A betrayal. I remember one time when Rachel held Evans, yes. which she was still with us, told me, you know, cause I went through the whole thing yeah. publicly too, yeah. around the queer community, same, same space. And I remember asking her one time, like, why am I getting different treatment mm. than other allies? And I don't understand. And she said, the Christian the, or the evangelical community really has a tolerance mm. baked in for some reason for folks that come into the zeitgeist as is. Right. I'm queer. I'm Flamey Grant. Right. I'm, this is who I am and who I've been. They have no tolerance for someone who has changed their mind. Wow. So someone from the inside of the camp mm. who goes through an evolution of all of it, doctrine, theology, belief, understanding, perspective. Yeah. yeah. Zero tolerance. Zero. We were insiders. Yes. We were supposed to right. be the, the poster boy and girl. Yeah. For the, for the boat. Yeah. Yes, exactly right. And I did, so, I sense it as like a, they, they think I have like abandoned and betrayed them. They think that I right. like, you should have known better. Like you're a straight white man <laughs> you know, or whatever they think that means, whatever they're, yeah. they're, and so, yeah, it was interesting. And he, you know, Jen, here's the thing though, is the, here's the, the main reason I was glad that we were, I mean, I'm, I'm glad we were there for a lot of reasons, but one reason is because I know from 30 years in the industry, and this is important for people to hear, you know, so similar was, I think the first openly queer artist to have an album go number one on the Christian music charts. And that happened just in the last few years. Flamey mm -hmm. was the first drag queen for that to happen. And maybe it was the first, maybe who knows, but the first, you know, drag queen at the double words. I don't know some of that, but let me tell you what I do mm -hmm. know from being, having been in this community for as long as I have, that Flamey and Similar were not the, the first two queer artists to have number one albums and singles on the Christian music charts. It has happened so many times over the years, but two people who are closeted and people who right. live in tremendous fear in that right. space, because they know they will be immediately, and we've seen it with, with some artists, and some artists are, are, are very good friends and probably mutual friends, but is they they are ex immediately rejected excluded yeah. marginalized out but like there have been so many queer artists on that stage 
accepting those awards. So many. That's right. And we were not the first by a long shot. That no, room was so full right. of queer artists. It was so there were so mm -hmm. many, and I I saw them. I mean, I know I know these are friends. I I saw them. I saw I saw some accept awards, and so like, no, like so it feels like another one of those moments, those disruption mm -hmm. moments. I feel like this is what Christian, the, the, really the whole Christian space is going through. But but you can really specifically look at it in the music, the Christian music. It's one of those moments where either the industry is going to evolve and adapt and realize, oh, this is already happening. These people are yeah. already here. We have countless allies already in our industry and space totally. waiting to come up around and support these people who are all terrified to be the first. It's going to happen. It's already happening. So either mm -hmm. we go on a new season of possible relevance or you complain your way into the ice age and you're done. And you have those two choices. And I feel the Christian space, be it in progressive Christian churches or communities, be it in the way that the queer community has taken a real ownership of the, of the, mm -hmm. the, the spiritual space and said like, nah, like this is mm -hmm. our space too. And like, we don't even That's come right. into your space. We have our own, we create our own space. Mm -hmm. And the work of so many mutual friends and so many beautiful folks who are doing such important work, so many important voices in the music side it just feels like the thing is going to erupt and either it's going to all be over within five or 10 years and totally relevant over. No one's going to, it's going to be like a ghetto or it's going to evolve in some way and it's, it's going to change. And I kind of don't know which way it's going to go, but I can feel yeah. the electricity in the moment, the macro evolution moment that I feel like we're in right now. And I could feel it that night. Well, I'm not a welcomed member anymore of the evangelical women's leadership cabal, whatever that is. I care about it because it affects people. Absolutely. It's what people are hearing and they're looking and they're hungry and they're, it has an impact. It does. And so I too still care, but also similar to your story at the Dove Awards, just by nature of leadership, whatever it looks like in my life and travel and being in places. People from that community come to me all the time. Pastors, yeah, people kind of in traditional evangelical leadership going, um, asking new questions. I know the cost and that's why I'm still over here. Yep. Which I understand. Yep. And Stan Mitchell, I, I mean, you know, he walks yeah. churches through Yep. You know, the, the coming out into being an affirming space yes. and, a, and, a, and a safe welcoming space. And I know, because I get some of this, I can't imagine what you get. You are probably at the bleeding edge front line of people in major positions of influence coming to someone like you and saying, what would it mean for me to, how would I even broach this? How would I yeah. even, and like coming to you because you've done it. Like you, you're, yeah. you are squarely, you got thrown, you know, one side to the other, mm -hmm. but they are, they are, they, they are starting to come. Yeah. I think that those ethics are coming into play. And I think that people are realizing they are. Like they're seeing the extreme of response on one side. And they're like, you know what? I don't, don't relate. I don't think that's how God that's responds. Right. I don't. And it's starting to change I'm needing to, to expand my imagination to imagine God being bigger than the rigid moral structure that I have had him in for the last 50 years. That's right. 
I mean, no one disrupted before Jesus did. It's like what Jesus said where he was like, okay, you've heard it said that blank, a rule that has governed your version of a religion right. for a century. You've heard it said, and, this, and you, you've lived your life on that practice. But I say unto you, and he remixed mm -hmm. it, and he changed it. He turned it up sideways. And they were like, oh, um, okay, hang on. He's like, no, 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 no. You've also heard it said. And he said another major, these were the major teachings of an understanding of a major right. world religion to the people practicing it. He came in and he changed it on the spot. He remixed it. He changed, mm -hmm. he disrupted it. He, he deconstructed it. And he said it means something totally different. And suddenly those people were like, had to reckon with the, the, the possibility that they had completely for thousands of years, totally misunderstood, mispracticed the entire religion. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did that. That's exactly what he did. Yeah. Real popular guy. That yeah. One. Yeah. <laughs> and so we have to imagine that we could do the same. Like, yeah. what if we have so fundamentally misunderstood this? And that's why it's never felt right to exclude and judge queer that's folks. Right. It's because it's not what we're meant to be doing. Because it's not right. It's not because it's not right. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, that's and, right. And could we have the, the, the imagination, the moral imagination to see that and to imagine mm -hmm. that that is not only where Jesus was going, but that's where he was. That's where he went. And that's that, right. is, that is literally what he does in our space. You know, so. I tell you who that's resonant with. And then I'm like, good Lord, I'm 30 minutes past what the time I asked you for. I'm so sorry. <laughs> and you're going to go off into your life because you have one life. This is resonant and clear for the next generation. Yeah. So 100%. as you are looking at the cracks in the machine and they're everywhere. Yes. I'm watching this next generation press hard on those cracks. Yes. They only see possibility and, and spark. Like we see, totally. we see foundation and crack. Mm. They see spark and possibility. They do. And it's exciting to watch. It is I've exciting. learned a lot from this next wave. That's right. And they just won't have it. Yes. They won't have any of this. Yeah. They won't have the bigotry. They won't yes. have the homophobia. They just, yes. they'll have none of it. Yeah. yeah. So there I is feel no version of this spirituality. Hopeful. Yeah. That, that includes that not having it. Yeah. Not having it. Okay. Um, thank you for staying on this. Oh, thank you for spending the time with me way longer than I asked you to. Not at all. We could do the whole day. I, we could, we could do a telephone. We could, this we could, could be just, a whole I mean, series. Let's start raising money. <laughs> Stay on all day. Christian marketing. Listen, it, it does work. <laughs> oh, it works. Yeah. I mean, put plenty of grant right at the top of the charts. So it works. I mean, I'm so excited to put this conversation in my community. Will you just remind everybody where to find you, where to find your most recent work from the Jesus hypothesis and, yeah. and even just where you're at right now? Yes. Yeah. So it's easy. It's D-E-R-E-K-W-E-B-B. -E -E -B. So my website, any social media, I'm just at Derek Webb. My stuff's all everywhere you'd go looking for it. So if you go to Spotify and put my name in, you go looking for Jesus Hypothesis, that's the new record. That's always the thing you think is the best thing you've done. I mean, hopefully you think your newest thing. So that's the new record. You can also, I would definitely encourage people again to go find Flamey Grant, go find uh, Simler, go find yeah. Maddie Zom, go find, there are so yeah. many artists making, and these are the young, this is the next generation you're talking about. Yeah. And they presume it should and it should be and will be this way. It must mm -hmm. and shall be this way, in fact. And so go and find all this music. Everywhere you go looking for me, that's where you'll find me. And I would love for folks okay. to, yeah, come and check out the music and everything. We'll close on this. This is a lyric off one of your songs hmm. on the new album. 
Maybe black sheep are not lost. Oh, they're just pioneers, just brave enough to wander off and find what's past our fears. So good. Beautiful. You're an incredible artist and you're so talented. And I absolutely respect and admire your commitment to what is true and good Mm. and right. Come what may. I admire your consistency Mm. to stay the course and it's going to matter. It it, it matters now. It matters now. So, well, thank you for that. Well done. And I hope you know that like you could be saying every bit of this into a mirror because our stories are similar Mm. enough. They are that every bit of that is true about what you Mm -hmm. have done and are doing and how much it matters. And to the people who are not finding camaraderie or not finding community or not finding, I mean, like, and so that's, that is the reason I do it. I know that's the reason you do it at this point. We're out here. Yeah. Full-time vocational ministry. (laughs) I did not expect to hear you say that today. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Thanks for being on. Absolutely. All right, you guys, lot to chew on there. Lot, lot, lot. And I'm so grateful for his, for that conversation. If you go over to jenhatmaker.com under the podcast tab, not only will I have this episode and the show notes, but I will put links to literally everything Derek just said. His stuff, Flamey Grant stuff, all the artists that he mentioned, the places to find and follow them. And you'll be the better for it, right? Thank you for being such a great community. Thank you for being with us in this particular series, Facing Your Fears. We look forward to all your feedback and we pay attention to all of it. So whether that's like in reviews and ratings and subscriptions, of course, your subscriptions tell us what we need to know that you're here for it or the comments that you put on socials when we post each episode, we we listen. So thank you for your feedback. And thank you. If, if you loved this episode as much as I did, share it. Share it. This is one way to sort of bring our worlds into what I think is a really important space of spiritual examination. So more to come in this awesome series, you guys. And I look forward to each one so very much. If you've missed any, go back and pick them up wherever you subscribe to the show. So, all right, you guys, on behalf of our whole team, we sure love you. See you next week. The For the Love Podcast with Jen Hatmaker is a presentation of Odyssey and produced by Four Eyes Media with Laura Neitzling, producer, Abby Stevens, production director, Gregory DeMario, production assistant, and Lauren Winfield, researcher. Odyssey's executive producers are Jenna Weiss-Berman and Leah Reese-Dennis. Special thanks to the team at Odyssey, Maura Curran, Melissa Wester, Matt Casey, Kate Hutchinson, Eric Donnelly, Aaron Constantino, Kurt Courtney, and Hilary Schupf. Listen and follow For the Love, an Odyssey podcast produced by Four Eyes Media on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a production of Four Eyes Media.